This is the second episode in a two-part series. This episode contains discussion of violence. Listener discretion is advised. There's also brief mention of suicide. If you or someone you love is struggling, you can get help by calling 1-800-273-8255. This is the fall line. Last episode, we introduced you to the case of Victor Ray Greenwood, who was 36 years old in January of 2002, the last time he was seen by his friends and family. Victor was born and raised in Atoka, Oklahoma. It's a little town two hours south of Tulsa, two hours north of Dallas, and intersected by highways leading toward more metropolitan areas. The land is mostly flat, good for farming and ranching. In a town of a little over 3,000, most people know most people. Kids from surrounding towns all attend the county high school. Victor's family, the Greenwoods, have been established in Atoka and in other small towns that surround it for a long time. One of his uncles is a local doctor. Victor's stepfather, Joe Bill Greenwood, had raised him since he was a toddler. He worked for the city of Atoka for a total of 58 years in a shared municipal building that also housed the police station. And the names of Victor's relations, surnames like Greenwood, Crooms, Yarborough, Brooks, are woven through Atoka history. The sons of Willie May, Victor's mother, have all developed various eye conditions that impair their vision. Victor, the oldest, and Eric, the youngest, have the same diagnosis, Lieber hereditary optic neuropathy, with onset in their early 20s. Victor's vision made it impossible for him to drive, which meant he walked everywhere, and he did that often. Beginning in young adulthood, he received disability benefits and spent his days visiting family and friends. He'd travel on foot, first walking his stepfather, Joe Bill, partway to work, then splitting off to make his own rounds through town. Eric, Victor's brother, has told us that Victor mostly relied on his peripheral vision, which enabled him to follow familiar paths through his hometown and stop in at local stores. Victor liked to hang out in a particular group of homes near his father's house in an area nicknamed The Den and he'd often drink there with his brother Chris and others he'd known for years. Chris worked days at the local lumber yard, but he'd often stop in at Joe Bill's house or at friends or relatives to catch up with Victor. They were close in age and had grown up with the same circle of friends. It was Chris who was able to explain the origin of two distinct features that might help identify Victor today. Victor had a missing right central incisor and a permanently bent index finger on his right hand, both the result of a fight they'd gotten into with other young men more than a decade before Victor's disappearance. As far as Chris and Eric know, there were no doctor's visits or dentist x-rays done as a result of those injuries. That's a trail that Eric's friend Nicole helped us follow. We had hoped that there'd be some dental records somewhere that could be retrieved and added to Victor's file. So far, we've run into dead ends. 
The events that led to Victor's disappearance are unclear. They may have been set in motion as early as January 1999. As we told you last episode, that's when Willie May, Victor's mother, died unexpectedly at their family home. It was incredibly painful for all five of the Greenwood siblings and may have been a precipitating factor in Victor's hospitalization in March of 1999 for a psychotic episode possibly due to schizophrenia. Victor's youngest brother, Eric, has been unable to access Victor's records to verify this. The hospital has told him that they have not been retained. When Victor's missing persons report was filed on January 14, 2002, and reported to NCIC, he was listed as endangered missing. His reported mental health history was likely a contributing factor in that designation. We can't know the full scope of Victor's mental health from 1999 through 2002, and we won't guess. We can only share what we've been told. Eric has since recalled his brother responding to internal stimuli, having conversations with people or things that others couldn't see, or preparing for events that weren't actually happening. But he was also continuing with daily activities like visiting friends, shopping, and attending family events. His brother Chris still spent time with him, and things often felt like they always had. So, there's no clear line from Victor's stay at the Carl Albert Mental Health Facility to his disappearance nearly three years later, in January 2002. But, according to Eric, Victor had been absent from home more often in 2001, the last year he'd been with his family. He missed important events. He spent at least a few weeks, maybe a few months, living with another relative in town. He had expressed some interest in visiting family in Tulsa. Each of Victor's siblings remembers things a little differently, and that's normal. They all had their own relationships with him, but they all agree that it wasn't like him to just disappear without a word, and not like him to leave Joe Bill Greenwood, their father, alone. Joe Bill was still mourning the loss of Willie May, and everyone had pulled together to care for him. Eric believes Victor would not have put Joe Bill through that, not purposely, not if he was thinking clearly. That brings us to the crossroads of January 9th, 2002. Victor Greenwood and Joe Bill Greenwood set out for their morning walk, something they did every weekday. At a certain point in town, Joe Bill would turn one way and head on to the municipal building that housed Atoka's police station and the city offices where he worked. And Victor would turn and go elsewhere. Which way did he go that day? And at what point did he veer off his usual course? The possibilities seem to be as follows. That Victor had an accident while he was out, either in Atoka or in the surrounding areas. That Victor voluntarily left Atoka, but may not have been in a stable mental state at the time. Or that Victor died by suicide or by homicide. The best way to unknot what evidence there is and what can be discounted is to explore each path. And the first question, the one that precedes the exploration of each path is this. What kind of investigation took place? When we first began work on this series, 
we made contact with the assistant chief of the Atoka Police Department, Mark Rains. You heard in the last episode that he'd worked on Victor's case since the beginning and with the department for 28 years. We were able to speak with him late this spring and received a FOIA fulfillment on the case. So you've been involved in Victor's case since the beginning. Yes, from the onset, but not the lead investigator in the beginning. When the missing persons report was filed in Victor's case, we know the department's focus fell into two main areas, speaking to people who knew Victor and conducting searches through town. Can you walk us through those searches? Yes, uh, numerous interviews were performed and and numerous areas were searched throughout the uh, town in areas we knew where Victor walked. Atoka is a little over eight square miles in area, marked with railroad tracks, bridges, and fields. Eric says that as kids, they walked along all of them and took plenty of shortcuts through the woods that surrounded their homes. These are some of the areas that were searched after Victor went missing, along with more straightforward roads. Eric told us that after the onset of Victor's optic neuropathy, he generally stuck to the sidewalks and the streets and would have been less likely to take a shortcut. To purposely take a shortcut, anyway. And so, how likely would it be for Victor to get lost or get hurt on familiar ground? We discussed this with Eric this summer, several months after his initial interview with Brooke. One consideration we worked through in the conversation is that Victor drank alcohol to relax, and Eric doesn't drink. They have the same eye condition, and Eric also spends a lot of time walking in a toga. And he's currently close to the age Victor was when he disappeared. When Victor would move around town, he would usually walk the same routes. But if he was to take a new route, would that be easy for him, even with his eye condition, to be able to easily see where he was going, to cross a street, to see a road sign? Yes, it's just how we mainly did it. It's like you can remember things and visualize everything in your mind. But you just have to take your time to, like, like crossing the street. You really have to, like, really concentrate on what you're looking at and try to make sure nothing's coming out or nothing, everything is real far back. So you got to look a certain way to cross the highway or something like that. Um, That's how I usually do it and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, if you really pay attention to where you're going and all that, it's easy to get around. It's not so hard as some people would think. I know that one thing you and I have discussed is the possibility of whether Victor could have accidentally gotten off route, if that would be a possibility. Is that something that you could see happening if he had been drinking? You can know where you're going, but you're not, your mind is really not functioning 100%, if that makes any sense. Like, like you know where you're going some of the time, but you can sometimes get sidetracked and turned around and all that by being intoxicated. That has happened to me once, and yeah, it might have happened to him as well. Um, Yes, I think that's possible. In addition to the police department, Eric, Chris, and the other relatives, they searched Atoka too. They found no sign of Victor. Eric sent us pictures of the land around their childhood home. It's flat and mostly fields. There are a few areas of dense wood, 
Near the houses where Victor used to hang out with Chris, but Assistant Chief Rains indicated nothing in town was fully inaccessible. But there were, as we told you last time, bodies of water in the area. And after Victor disappeared, there were a combination of rumors and tips that implied he might have ended up in one of them. Though those rumors and tips initially indicated foul play, they led to searches that covered additional areas. So, Indirectly, those searches also ruled out places where Victor might have had an accident. I know in the file you followed up on a number of leads, including those that came up once the reward was announced and the flyers with Victor's picture on them went up. There was specifically a local pond that was reported as a possible place of interest. Can you talk about the search of that area? Was it definitively ruled out as having any relationship to Victor's disappearance? Based on that lead, the pond in question was searched by a dive team, and nothing was discovered. Victor's brother Eric told us in the early or mid-2000s there was another small body of water that was dragged in or nearby Atoka, and we wanted to know if that was related in any way. A small, shallow pond was dragged, uh, which was actually behind in close proximity to where Victor lived at the time. And this was separate pond from the first one? It was separate pond, yes. The first one was a deep pond, and that's why we had divers come in. And was this pond dragged in relation to Victor's case? Yes, based on information we, we received. Anything is possible, but it seems unlikely that if Victor was accidentally injured or killed while walking in a toka, even if he had gotten quite far off course, he would have remained undiscovered for nearly 20 years. Now, he could have moved farther out of town in any direction, and that complicates things. We haven't found any reported unidentified decedents close to Atoka, although there are at least three male decedents in the state who cannot be ruled out as a match for Victor, simply based on dates and demographics. After we identified those NamUs entries, we shared them with law enforcement. Currently, there's no familial DNA on file for Victor, but that can be remedied with a swab from a sibling or parent. A cold case advocate told us that Oklahoma's NamUs entries for the unidentified are lagging statewide, so we don't know how useful it will actually be. Other possible comparisons will become available as new data enters the system. If you, the listener, are looking at cold cases, please, Remember that Victor has no dental records available, but he does have that distinctive dental characteristic, that missing right center incisor. Don't forget, he has the permanently bent index finger on his right hand at the first joint. And now we're at the second path. Could Victor have purposely left Atoka that Wednesday, January 9th, 2002? If so, what mental state might he have been in? Where would he have been headed? And if he's alive today, where could he be? Many of the possible witnesses questioned in this case weren't precisely sure of the last day they'd seen Victor. In fact, many spoke in weeks, not days. The first week of January, for instance. 
but two noted that somewhere in the first week of January, they'd seen him walking, quote, on northbound U.S. 6975. That's a little misleading to an outsider. Victor wasn't out on the shoulder of the freeway. It's an area where through roads join up and become a main thoroughfare through town, with the sidewalks and plenty of businesses on either side. If he was going to catch a ride, the 6975 merge would be a place to do it. But to where? Maybe to Texas, where his biological father Buford lives. But Buford and his family haven't heard anything from Victor since 2002. Buford is the one who put up a reward in the case back then and traveled to Atoka to speak to investigators when Victor went missing. When we spoke with Buford this spring, when he was recovering from an illness, We also spoke with his granddaughter, Kashari. She said losing Victor had been incredibly hard on her grandparents. Buford and her grandmother had also lost another son only the year before Victor vanished. They'd all wondered when they heard Victor was seen walking on 75 if he might have thought of coming to see them. But when he was spotted, he was heading northbound, the wrong direction. And that's if those sightings have any bearing at all. He simply could have been moving through town. We do know that Victor never cashed another Social Security Disability Benefits check, which was his only means of income in 2002. And those checks continued to arrive. Joe Bill had to make several calls to the Social Security office to have them halted and held, hopefully for Victor's return. To our knowledge, there's been no further activity on his Social Security number. No one reported seeing him hitchhiking or in surrounding towns, or has suggested there's been any contact at all. If Victor was experiencing psychosis, it's possible he could have left town for reasons that aren't based on external logic. There's the chance that, if he continued to experience symptoms, he might not have been able to make his way back to Atoka. If he ended up in a large enough metro area, He might have joined the unhoused community he found there. He might have been admitted for mental health care. There are so many scenarios. And a possibility that Victor could be alive. That's the feeling Eric has always had, even though the rumors in town have been darker. From day one, I never, like, people ask me, like, do you think he's dead? And from day one, I never think he's dead. I just, I, that's, that's, that can't be in my mindset. My mindset is he's still alive. You know, I can't let that go. In my mind, he's alive somewhere. I don't know where, but I never, that never ever crossed my mind that he's dead or, or anything like that. So that's what I've been with since day one. Is that because that, thought would be too upsetting for you? No, no. It's just to me, in my heart, it's something telling me that I don't think he, I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to explain it, but in my, in my heart is, I don't feel like he, he has, but I mean, if it was to come to it, like, yeah, if it'd become to a day that we find him and it's really him, and some happened, then I would just deal with it then. But to me, I don't, I, I, I can't, I don't think he is. Though it's not out of question that Victor, at a totally stable point in his life, 
decided to leave Atoka for good and never look back. It's difficult for those who knew him to think that he would. He was extremely close to Joe Bill, the stepfather who'd raised him, and they couldn't imagine him inflicting that pain on his dad. Joe Bill was still mourning the death of his wife, Willie May, when Victor disappeared. It was a crushing second blow. Chris, Eric's older brother, described how his father has dealt with it. In this clip, you'll also hear Chris's wife, Delia, in the background. Can you tell us how this has affected your dad? All my dad do is think about Vic because he made a promise. He said before he passed away, he's he's 88. He said before he passed away, he's going to find out what happened to Vic. That's my agenda. Well, it's not agenda. It's, I don't know the word for Um, it. No, that's what he promised his dad. He would find out what happened. I'm sure this guy wants to know, and he's 88 years old. Maybe the only reason holding on is to find out what happened to his son. Because he made a promise to mom. He said he won't die until he finds out. He said that in a prayer. If Victor is alive today, he'll be in his mid-50s. Most of the available pictures of Victor, the ones we've shared, are from his teens and 20s. When he vanished, he was 36. Victor's case file needs good forensic art, an age progression. But Atoka doesn't have a forensic artist readily available to help with their cases. Luckily, they were able to connect with Kelly Lawson of the GBI. You've heard us speak of her work many times. Kelly is working on an age progression of Victor that may be finished by the time this episode is released. With her skill, if Victor is out there somewhere, his family will have a strong clue as to what he looks like today. Then, hopefully, this new addition to the case will be enough to raise the interest of local media, and that new image will spread. We've reached the final path toward possibility in Victor's case, the most violent, that he might not have died by accident, but by suicide or homicide. Just as we can't speak to Victor's mental state that January, we can't possibly guess as to whether he had any suicidal ideation, but he didn't express any to friends or family. There's no evidence indicating that he died by suicide, and none of the rumors that have circulated in town suggest that. But in any disappearance, it's a possibility. Last episode, we told you a little bit about the rumors that have gone around town. The police investigated one alleged confession to Victor's murder. But as we mentioned last episode, that turned out to be drunken bragging that occurred after a group of people spotted his missing persons flyer. That leaves us with what the family has heard and what they have observed. The stories have been disturbing, that Victor was attacked and buried at or near a local bridge, that his body is in the woods, in a field, at the bottom of that lake. What has stuck most, though, are two scenarios. First, that he was robbed by an acquaintance and purposely killed. And second, that he was robbed by people he knew very well and accidentally killed in the process. 
and then that those same people chose to cover up his death. The rumors have been passed along to law enforcement many times, but the observations that Victor's family have made, they're less concrete, sometimes just feelings that someone is lying, a story that doesn't make sense. Victor's brother, Chris, told us that a number of people were reluctant to say when they'd last seen Victor, which made it more difficult to trust their stories. It didn't help that, to Chris, dates shared with law enforcement and then with him seemed inconsistent. Remember, Victor and Chris spent time with the same people, in the same social circles, so Chris knew where to begin looking for his brother. He'd begun to inquire on January 10th, 2002, as soon as he knew Victor hadn't come home. Had you been calling around to see if anybody knew where he was? Yeah, I had talked to him, and then they say they never seen him that day. And I'm like, seriously? Because I just had seen him here with y'all that day. Did you start going out on your own to look for him? Yeah. What were your first thoughts about what may have happened? Well, to be honest, the day he came up, you know, when it all came up, when he disappeared and the people were saying that they haven't seen him, and I sit there and say, come on now, be honest. He always was there with y'all, you know. Y'all would drink beer with him and everything like that. And then y'all sitting there saying, y'all haven't seen him, which that wasn't true because he was always there. I knew where he was. And I confronted him, you know, I said things, you know. How did that go down? I, they just played it off. Yeah, still do it now. Just recently, there was a big episode that happened. We all got into it. I told him he know what happened to my brother, you know. I know. I got a gut feeling. I, my, I go with my gut. And he denied it? Yeah. He pretty much didn't say nothing after that. And Eric grew up hearing similar sets of rumors. Here's what he told us had been said concerning motive. Can you even imagine what might have led to violence if that did occur with Victor? I mean, because he was a kind guy, so really I can't even imagine why would somebody want to hurt him. Like a thing was going around that and this guy named wanted to rob him or something. Or this is what people were saying, that they wanted to rob him. They wasn't going to hurt him because they knew he was kind of blind or whatever. They just needed, you know, quick cash. And then what I heard that they accidentally hit him upside the head, but they checked on, but they didn't mean to kill him or, 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 or something like that. You know, that was a rumor. My brother Victor could fight. So, you know, even if that was the case that would happen, it would have been a struggle type situation. But on another hand, my brother didn't keep money on him like that. He kept most of his money in, in the bank because around that time you had to be smart. Like you can't just have money around like that because even if you was to drink around them, most even if you was to pass out, they would steal your money. And like a lot of them would get drunk and like start fights and all that. It was just all type of crazy nonsense type of deal. As we've worked on Victor's case, Assistant Chief Rains made it clear that Atoka police have heard the same stories and been alerted to possible inconsistencies. 
When we reviewed the file, we noticed that, at least in the publicly available material, several people stated they'd be willing to take polygraphs, if necessary. The question was whether there'd be anything to polygraph them about, whether any evidence or leads developed in the case would have necessitated this. Did you develop any early leads on Victor's whereabouts? Actually, only a couple, which did not produce any viable, credible evidence. Some people who had been interviewed offered to or agreed to take polygraphs. Were any polygraphs administered in the case? No. No viable information by any of these people warranted enough evidence to set up a polygraph. Is your office currently willing to name any persons of interest in the case? No. Victor's case has been open for a long time. What can the people of Atoka do to help you close it? Someone knows something. Someone who maybe has had direct contact with Victor, please come forward to help us resolve this case. If someone in Atoka hurt Victor, they've covered their tracks for 20 years. But stories have a way of coming to the surface. And there are plenty of people who know the Greenwood family. Know that Joe Bill, now in his late 80s, has been waiting for word of his son. Recently, there's been discussion of possible searches by volunteer services that can offer more penetrating equipment than human eyes. If an area becomes a serious possibility, there are dogs and equipment that can and will help with a more complex ground search. For now, Eric and Chris and the rest of the family are at that intersection of possibility, wondering if they'll ever get resolution, if they'll find out which way Victor went. The months spent working on the podcast haven't just brought up those kinds of thoughts, though. For Eric, it's reminded him of all the good things about his brother and himself. From the way that Christopher described him, he was a very compassionate person, wanted to care for people he loved. Anytime, like, I was going through things, he was he would always be there. And, you know, like, he always used to tell me, like, not to let anyone pick on me, you know, bully me, you know, to stand up for myself. So, like, to this day, I'm always, I'll, I'll remember that. Like, I always look out for other people. I'm always, you know, helping other people. And, like, last month, I turned eight years sober of alcohol. So, from there, I really took trying to help other people. So, and, you know, I thank my brother for that because, you know, he always told me to look at, you know, look after other people, you know, that to help other people. So that's where I mainly kind of got that from. So, you know, I owe a lot of that to him. To be honest, my brother was like me. If I was to have to say, like, I'm outgoing, I'm, I'm funny. I love making people laugh. That's how he was. Love to have fun, super caring, would give his shirt off his back to somebody. So, I mean, the way how he was, that's how I am. It's so sad to hear when you think about that something obviously happened to Victor. I mean, I, I like, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. When I used to party, like, I would still have that party, that mindset, but I was still hurt, you know, because I lost my mom when I was 15. 
And then he went missing. So it was like, I didn't know how to, you know, react to things. So I, I walked around with a smile on my face, but I was still hurting. So whenever I would drink, I would numb it, but it got to the point I would hold everything in and I was like, you know, getting too angry with things and that wasn't me. And I had my first son when I was in 2005, but, you know, I still party, but I never drink around him like that. And I had my two youngest ones from a previous relationship, but I never drank around him. But before my youngest son came, that's when I got to the point, like, I, I can't, I can't do this. You know, I, I have to, I have to better myself. I have to do this for my kids and my family. And then that's when I made that promise to my kids that I would never go back to drinking. And then I, I wanted to help more people. So I started helping people that, you know, started, you know, lost their loved ones that went missing. I really got dedicated to that. And that's something that I really want to do. And I wanted to do missing person detective, but I lost some of my eyesight when I was little. Like I never thought about my parents, like one of my parents dying, you know, I, that never crossed my mind until it actually happened. And then like, I always knew people go missing, but you know how they say, oh, it won't happen in my, in my neighborhood, you know? But then when it happened, that's when everything, that's when I'm like, oh, wow, like, this is, this is like really real. So when I see people go missing, it, that, that, that really gets to me because I'm in that boat. In the last two years, Eric has spent time sharing Victor's story on social media, but also working with other families to boost their loved one's stories too, to get them featured on regional cold case pages. That's why I got to the point, like, I want to make a difference to try to help the best way I can. So that's why I started that deal with my brother, like, find a mission. So anybody that show up missing, I just take that, that page and just add it to mine and, like, you know, get, the, get it out there. So that's me trying to deal with the issue that I'm going through. Sometimes I feel like nobody cares, you know, like more, I feel that more people should be doing something. And then that's when like, I always started doing things. I started sharing my brother's deal. My friends started sharing. And from there, I had people like from other states started sharing. So from there, that's when I was like, okay, we're getting somewhere. And then when my friend, Nicole, told me about you and Laura, it sounds like, though, you're doing the exact same thing, like with your page, reaching out to people who are trying to get the word out there. Yeah. And that's 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 all I want. Like, I just want, you know, I just I just want to know. I just want answers, you know, like I just it's like I've dealt with this for so long and it's like it, it it's. It's just, uh, it's just eat me up. Like right now, it's like, in a way, like it feels, I'm so emotional, but when you get to this point for so long, 
it's like it's like hard for me to even try to to cry, you know, because it's like I don't know. It's just I can't never think of how to get it out, you know. Just dealing with it for so long is I, I don't want to like I don't want to hurt no more. I just want to be I just I just need peace. But in a way, with my mom, to, in a way, I kind of made peace with that because I go visit her all the time and sit her in front of her headstone and just talk to her. I just tell her how my day's going. I tell her how the kids going. I bring the kids over there. I just, I pretty much have a conversation with her. So with that, like, it's, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in that, that, that lost place, you know, like. Like every night I pray, I pray all the time. Like I pray like probably three or four times a day. Um, I'm always praying to her and I pray about, I pray to Victor. Like I've, I've been doing that since day one with him and my mom, you know, let mom take care of him wherever he may be, you know? So that's the only way I could come to peace with some things when I pray. Cause if not, I'm 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 that type of person. I will sit and dwell on something for a long time and try to figure it out. And my cousin, my one cousin, <laughs> tell me not to do that. But I told her it's like I'm that type of person. I like to figure things out and try to fix things. That's just how I am. For the first time in years, Eric feels that Victor's case is seeing some movement. Corrective information, new media attention, Nicole's work in Atoka, his own work on this podcast, the age progression, and getting this story to you, an audience across the United States who can share it. Eric doesn't know what happened to his brother, and he needs your help. We are asking our audience's assistance in widely sharing the age progression of Victor. It will be posted on our social media and on the Atoka Police Department's page as soon as it is completed. If you live in or around Oklahoma or Texas, please encourage your local media to cover Victor's story. Consider searching through NamUs for potential matches and submitting them to official channels. Remember, those potential matches, they should be submitted to the regional NamUs contact who is listed on the page and never to families. Victor Ray Greenwood was 36 years old when he disappeared. He's described as a black male between six feet and six feet two inches tall and about 150 pounds with brown eyes. At the time of his disappearance, he was most likely clean shaven, though he sometimes had a light mustache. Victor had a scar, which Crime Stoppers describes as between his eyebrows. Eric recalls it as closer to the right side of his face, the result of an accidental burn. Eric recalls that, that January, his brother's hair was cut into a fade, but had begun to grow out. He was likely wearing a white t-shirt or a green and white rugby shirt, blue jeans, and tennis shoes. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Victor Ray Greenwood, please call the Atoka Police Department at 580 589-3250. There is a $1,000 reward offered in his case. Thank you for listening. 
The Fall Line is a fully independent show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIAs, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to fund the Millbrook Twins billboard, begin a therapy fund for families who've been on the show, and many other projects. You can read a public post about those goals on our Patreon page. Each and every one of our patrons help us continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blogs and videos for only $5 a month. We've also added video live streams, which all patrons can enjoy, starting at just a dollar. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters and Kim Fritz. Family interviews by Brooke Hargrove, produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Kirk. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to private investigations for the missing. Please join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the services of private investigators. <laughs> <laughs>